Who is my brother? What a loaded question. And so many people want to answer it in so many different ways. Jesus asked this question once in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 48. And his answer in that context was, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 50. But I have to admit when I take a look at Jesus' answer that I recognize Jesus had a certain advantage over me. Jesus perfectly understands the will of the Father in heaven. And further, Jesus perfectly understands the heart of everyone with whom He comes in contact. I recognize that I am not Jesus. I do believe that the will of God is understandable. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul commands us to understand the will of the Lord. And I do believe that in general I understand God's will, but I recognize that I am a growing Christian. That means there are things that I still get wrong. That means there are still things that I have yet to understand accurately, and I am still growing. And because of that, when I strive to answer a question like this, who is my brother, I struggle to answer it exhaustively. Further, when I consider this question, I recognize that even just answering this question doesn't necessarily deal with all the issues that might come up surrounding the questions of brotherhood and fellowship. When we consider a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11, in which Paul wrote, But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. This points out that at times I might suggest that someone is in fact a brother and yet I can't have fellowship with them, not participating jointly in those activities with them, sometimes even to the point of not even eating with them. And so as we consider these questions of fellowship, we struggle. When must we maintain fellowship? When must we sever fellowship? These questions seem to come up no matter what kind of disagreement we're talking about. Whether we're talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage, whether we're talking about the head covering or Bible classes or communion and various things like that or the pitch pipe or so many things, sooner or later we always ask the question, can we continue in fellowship even though we differ on this issue? And inevitably, once that question's up, someone else will inevitably say, well, Romans 14. It seems that today, no matter what the disagreement is, no matter what discussion comes up, the final answer eventually gets around to being, well, Romans 14. Romans 14 begins by talking about welcoming a weaker brother or accepting a weaker brother. But when? That's the question with which we struggle. The problem that we most commonly have with Romans 14 is that usually Romans 14 only comes up when we've been having some other discussion about some disagreement. And it becomes hard for us to read Romans 14 to see just what it says and the principles that it teaches without being blinded by what it's going to mean about whatever discussion we're having on another issue. And what I'd like for us to do is take a step back tonight and not think about any of the brotherhood issues that are out there, not think about how Romans 14 is going to impact how we're going to treat anybody who teaches anything on any various issue, and let's just take a look at the principles that Romans 14 presents to us about our fellowship and our 
conscience. And I hope that we can step back and with new eyes take a look at this chapter without worrying about all those other things. And then when we're done, if we realize some sound principles from this chapter, then we can apply those principles to whatever issue comes up. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer? Our glorious Father in heaven, we are thankful that you allow us to come together in this fellowship to worship you and to edify one another. And we pray that you would help us to have peace, help us to walk in love, help us to be willing to give up our rights in order to protect the conscience of our brethren, help us to be willing to submit to you and to others and to serve you and to glorify you. Father, forgive us where we have demanded our rights. Forgive us where we have demanded our own way. Forgive us for these sins and help us to turn away from the path of the tempter to walk in your paths of righteousness. Help us to understand when we may maintain fellowship. Help us to understand the times when we have to sever fellowship. And help us, Father, always to have the strength to do what we find in your Word. We love you, Father, and we thank you for loving us, sending your Son to die for us, and sending your Word so that we can know how to serve you. Help us as we deal with difficult questions to have our hearts open to your Word so that we can be governed by you, that it can be as though Jesus were living through us. Through him we pray. Amen. The first thing I want to do as we take a look at the issue of Romans 14, I want to talk about some misuses of the chapter. We're going to take a look at a few things that people have used Romans 14 for that are misuses. We can't use them in these ways. The very first thing I want you to understand is that Romans 14 is not a band-aid to cover every difference. 1 Corinthians 5.11, the passage that we read just moments ago, pointed out that there are some differences over which we're going to have to divide. Those, someone will say, yes, but those are all just issues of really bad sins. Notice also 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, remember that this verse is written in the context of Paul talking about people who taught there was no resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, he said, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, we often use that verse to talk about the fact that we shouldn't hang around those who use foul language or who tell dirty jokes. And, and I believe that the principle of this verse teaches that. But this verse is in the context of dealing with those who taught error. And Paul's point when he says bad company corrupts good morals, he said, Corinthians, you can't be hanging out with these people who are teaching error on the resurrection. You're going to have to sever that fellowship because the bad company here, the bad communication of this error is going to corrupt good morals. Romans 14 cannot then, in, that, in light of that, be used as some band-aid to cover every difference. We cannot use Romans 14 to teach us some type of unequivocal unity in diversity. There are issues over which we must divide. There are times when we must sever fellowship from people, and we cannot go to Romans 14 to claim, well, we'll just sweep everything under the rug. Romans 14 cannot be used as a band-aid to cover every difference. Secondly, Romans 14 must not be used as an excuse to quit studying. One of the things I've noticed about many people is they'll study an issue until they decide that it's a Romans 14 issue, and they say, oh, Romans 14. And for us, Romans 14 has become a euphemism for that issue doesn't matter. Now, why would I spend my time studying issues that don't matter? Romans 14 then has become an excuse to quit studying. But I'd like for you to look at Romans 14. 
Notice verse 1. It says in Romans 14 and verse 1, except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Except the one who is weak in faith. Now let me ask you, if somebody is weak in faith, does it not stand to reason that they need to study so that they might become strong in faith? Of course. Romans 14 is not an excuse to quit studying. It's a reason to continue studying. As we continue to read down, in verse 5 it says, One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each must be fully convinced in his own mind. The point being that we must be fully convinced that what we are doing is right. There's only one way for us to be fully convinced that what we're doing is right. And that is to continue studying the Word of God. Please understand, Romans 14 is not an excuse to quit studying. It is a reason to continue studying. Thirdly, Romans 14 is not a straitjacket with which to bind preferences. Y'all remember Max Dawson. Many of you remember Max Dawson. He held a meeting for us last spring. There was a time when a sister approached him and told him that he was not allowed to wear his red tie anymore because it offended her. And based upon Romans 14, that meant he couldn't wear it. Offended preferences is not the same thing as violated consciences. And we must understand that. Romans 14 is not talking about preferences. It's not talking about likes and dislikes. It's talking about some issue that causes somebody else to sin because it pushes them to do something they don't have faith is the right thing to do. Look in first, excuse me, look in Romans 14. We're going to begin reading in verse 14. Paul says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but the righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Do you realize that what this passage is talking about is not, I don't like this, but this is going to cause me to sin. Now, brethren, I'm just going to tell you, this demands an extreme amount of honesty. Is the thing I'm dealing with something that is really going to cause me to stumble? Or is it really just something that I just don't like? And I'll tell you, we have an immense talent 
for assuming that everything I don't like is spiritually wrong. You see that sister who told Max he shouldn't wear his tie said, whenever you wear that red tie, it makes me think of the devil and it distracts me in the sermon. You see, she had the idea that because she could attach some type of spiritual meaning to it, that suddenly that meant it was a Romans 14 issue and he had to get rid of that tie. And that's just not true. Let me give you another example of where this comes into play. What about the kind of songs that we sing in our congregational assemblies? You don't have to like every song we sing. You don't have to like every kind of song we sing. You don't have to like old songs, and you don't have to like the new songs. But please do not turn your preferences into a straitjacket trying to tell us what kind of songs we're allowed to sing in the assembly. If the song teaches the truth and honors God, whether you and I like it or not, it's a song that we can sing. Now, I'm not talking about if you think it teaches error. And you have to decide in your own mind how strongly you're convicted about that, whether you'll bring it up to the song leader or not. But if it's just, I just don't like these new songs. I just get tired of those old songs. We're here to sing and praise God. And you don't have to like all the songs. But God has commanded us to sing. And Romans 14 is not a straitjacket with which to bind our preferences. That's going to take some honesty, though, isn't it? Am I being asked, is this going to cause me to stumble and sin? Or is it just something I just don't really like to do? Got to be honest. The fourth thing. Romans 14 is not permission to do whatever I want. Now, this may sound obvious, but I have really heard people use Romans 14 because verse 10 says, Why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. I have really heard people use Romans 14 to say that you don't get to say anything about how I live. Period. You're not allowed to judge me. Romans 14.10 says that. When we take that approach, we're using Romans 14 to, to make the exact opposite point that it makes. Because, in fact, it does teach us. Those verses that we read just moments ago taught us that there are times that when our brothers' consciences be violated and they might be pushed to do something that they just don't have faith that it's the right thing to do, that we have caused them to sin. And our responsibility in that moment is to refrain from our liberties, to abstain, not to say it's my right, not to say I'm allowed to do whatever I want without regard to how my brethren feel about it, but to say that I am going to limit my liberties. I believe that it's lawful but I'm not going to do it because I want to protect my brother or sister's conscience on this matter because I'm walking in love and I'm more concerned about their soul than I am whether or not I get to eat this steak. And so we cannot use Romans 14 as permission to do just whatever we want without regard for our brethren. When I consider these last two points, it brings up one more fifth misuse. And this is a little bit more subtle, but I hope you can bear with me and understand the point that I am making. Romans 14 is not written to be used to tell everyone else what they are or are not allowed to do. Romans 14 was not written so that you and I can tell everybody else what they are or are not allowed to do. Romans 14 is one of those very interesting passages that was written so that I would know what I am or am not allowed to do. 
Let me give you an illustration. Philippians chapter 2. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. How many of you remember the lesson that I preached? This has been a long time ago, entitled The Most Important Passage for Your Marriage. Anybody remember that sermon? Okay, good. A few of you. That's awesome. Those of you who don't remember, you need to get online and look that one up again. In that lesson, this is the passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is the most important Bible passage for your marriage. One of the points that I made in that lesson is, you can't use this verse to point at your spouse. Because the moment Marita and I get to fussing and fighting, and I start looking at her and saying, you're being selfish, trying to force your way instead of letting me have what I want. Oh, wait. When I do that, what am I being? Selfish. I'm the one violating the passage. Romans 14 is very much like that. You see, Romans 14 wasn't written so I can start demanding everyone else protect my feelings. Romans 14 was written so that I might learn to look at you and to love you and to limit my actions so that I might protect your conscience. Romans 14 wasn't written... So that I might tell you, you're not allowed to judge me based upon your doubts and opinions. Romans 14 was written so that I might learn not to judge and condemn others based on my doubts and opinions. You see, the moment I start using it as trying to bind anything on you, I've lost the fact that it was written for me to look at me. And so... When we're reading Romans 14, and we're trying to figure out who has to abstain from some activity, we need to be thinking about ourselves. When we're trying to figure out who is the one that shouldn't be judging here, we need to be thinking about ourselves. Because that's what Romans 14 was written to teach us. Teach us how to walk in love. Now, how do we welcome a brother or accept a brother based on Romans 14. Romans 14.1 says, Accept the brother who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. When do we welcome a brother? And what issues fit under this? I cannot create for you a list of issues that fit in Romans 14. In fact, if there is any point that I want you to go home with tonight. It's in reality, I don't believe anybody can write a list, universal, brotherhood-wide list of here are the issues that are Romans 14 issues. Preachers have done that. I've seen sermons. I've read outlines. But whenever a preacher writes that list and says, see, here are the Romans 14 issues, we are learning more about that preacher and his spiritual state than we are learning about Romans 14. And I hope that I can demonstrate that to you tonight. So I'm not going to give you a list. I'm not going to tell you, here are the 25 issues that fit in Romans 14. But what I hope to share with you is what I believe are the principles that we can find in Romans 14. These are not the only principles that relate to fellowship and making fellowship decisions. This is just taking a look at Romans 14 and what it's dealing with. And I hope we can take these principles home with us as we make our decisions 
about fellowship and our conscience based on Romans 14. I recognize that I could be wrong. I recognize that many of you might disagree with me by the time we're done. And that's okay. We all have to believe what we think the Bible teaches. And I'll be happy to study and discuss anything with you at any time. But read with me and see if you don't see these principles taught in Romans chapter 14. The first one. In Romans 14, by the way, for these, this list that I'm going to give you principles that say this is a Romans 14 issue, I believe that, that they have to meet all these criteria to say it's a Romans 14 issue for me. And so, keep that in mind. I'm not just saying if it fits one category like this one, that that automatically makes it something that I would say is a Romans 14 issue. The first thing that I note in Romans 14, it's a difference in practice, not merely a belief. You'll notice as Paul talks about this, he talks about one eats and one doesn't eat. One keeps a day, one doesn't keep a day. It's, this Romans 14 was not written to discuss every difference that you and I might have. It's talking about differences in practice. Now, there's two areas in which I think this is important. The first area. I can illustrate it by sharing with you an experience I had in Beaumont. When I began to work with Max, we learned pretty quickly that he and I disagreed about Matthew chapter 24. Had a class on premillennialism a few weeks, months ago. Learned very quickly that I disagreed with some folks here on Matthew chapter 24. Max takes the more typical position among our brethren that Matthew chapter 24 deals with the destruction of Jerusalem up to verse 35, and then after that there's a break, and from verse 36 on it deals with the second or the final coming of Jesus Christ. I, on the other hand, take the less typical but more correct position that the entire chapter of Matthew 24 deals with the destruction of Jerusalem. And it only deals with the final coming of Jesus Christ to the extent that judgment is typical and happens essentially the same in every case. Max and I quickly had to figure out, can we work with each other? We have a difference. And what we recognized is that while we had a difference in belief on exactly what Matthew 24 meant, it would never result in any difference on practice. It's not going to change how we teach people enter the kingdom. It's not going to change how we teach people live in the kingdom. It's not going to change anything unless I, except for me preaching a sermon on Matthew 24, is going to say it's about destruction of Jerusalem. And he's going to say, well, from these verses on, it's about the final coming. And we continue to discuss and argue about that. But we recognize that because it's not going to change practice, that it was not a reason for which we needed to separate or sever fellowship. Now, on the other hand, if he taught premillennialism, if he looked at Matthew 24 and saw rapture and seven years of tribulation and a kingdom that hasn't yet come, now that's going to be a different story. Because that's going to teach different things about how to enter the kingdom. That's going to teach different things about how we live according to the Bible. Because, well, some of those passages are only about kingdom living, and so we don't have to live by those today. And that's going to cause a difference in practice. We couldn't have worked together if we'd had that difference. There's a second area in which this point, I think, becomes important. And I'll illustrate it again with my own personal experience. When I was a teenager, I became a Christian because I had become convinced that I should not be a Baptist kind of Christian. I needed to be just a Christian. I became convinced that I had not been baptized for the remission of my sins, and I needed to be, and therefore I was not, no matter how religious I had been, a child of God. And I had to be baptized for the remission of my sins so that I could be cleansed and forgiven and go to heaven by God's grace. 
And so I became a Christian. But you see, I was brought up to that point in the Baptist church. My mom had played piano in the Baptist church, and I was not convinced that we had to sing songs of worship and edification without instruments of music. Now, was the congregation there in Blyville at Main and 13th, were they supposed to withhold fellowship from me to root out every possible error I might believe at that time and withhold fellowship from me until I finally decided to toe the line on every issue? I think not. You see, brethren, I think there are going to be times when we consciously extend fellowship to those with which we disagree who are willing to submit to the common practice. Think about this. If we all admit that we are all growing Christians, what does that mean? That means that I know I'm wrong somewhere. And I know that you're wrong somewhere. And if I was going to say that we cannot really extend fellowship to anybody until we are completely right, who'd get to be in fellowship with anyone? It just wouldn't work. Now, had in that situation I decided to blow up my back and start teaching error on that issue and decide to start pushing a false practice, they would have had to have taken a stand. They would have had to have exercised discipline and severed fellowship. But for a time, there's no doubt, I believe, that we can consciously extend fellowship with folks to whom we disagree on an issue if they're willing to submit to a common practice while we study and continue to grow. In fact, brethren, I'm just going to tell you that subconsciously, unconsciously, we're doing that now. Because you don't know what everybody in this room believes. I don't know what everybody in this room believes about every issue out there. And I, I'm just almost pretty sure that you all disagree with me on some issues. And I hope that in time you'll come to grow and mature and agree with me. But that doesn't mean I go on a witch hunt to find every place where you disagree and say we have to withhold fellowship on those issues. Now, by the way, on that issue of musical instruments, I continued to study and I grow, grew, and I do understand that the New Testament does not authorize that, and it's unlawful to worship God in that way. If you disagree with that, let's study that so that you can grow as well. Second thing, Romans 14 issue. In Romans 14, we're dealing with issues of individual practice, not congregational practice. In Romans 14, it's except the one who is weak in faith. Verse 2, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Verse 4 demonstrates this. Excuse me. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You look in verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. This is dealing with individual practice. It's not dealing with congregational practice. You see, this was dealing with the person who was eating meats in their home, this was not dealing with whether or not they were trying to add meat into the Lord's Supper. See, we couldn't be involved in that. You start adding meat into the Lord's Supper, now it's something the congregation is doing, and I can't be separated from that. And so I, I, have, I, I can't be involved in that. Now, understand that there are some issues that might be seen in the congregational assembly that are still matters of individual practice, not congregational. For instance... Many of our song leaders, they'll stand up here, and as they get ready to lead the song, they do something that's absolutely necessary. You have to do this with every single song. There's not a song that this doesn't happen with. They have to pitch 
the song. You can't get around it. There's no way to lead a song without pitching the song. Now, I know some of you think, oh, I don't pitch the song. Certainly you do. When you start singing it, you're singing it at a pitch. And you chose that pitch somehow. Some folks, in order to choose that pitch, they have a little device they call a pitch pipe. And they blow on it or they hit the little button and it gives them a little note. Now, there are some song leaders that have conscience against that. But you have to understand, when Jimmy Hickman comes up here and blows on that little thing, he is using that. We are not using that. He is. And if you as a song leader have conscience against that, when you get up and leave singing, you don't have to use that. But on the other hand, if we brought a piano up here and started playing along, every single one of us would be singing to the accompaniment of instrumental music. Our worship would be offered with instrumental music, and that would be unlawful. And we can be a part of that. That, by the way, brethren, is the reason why I cannot be in fellowship with an institutional congregation, a congregation that uses its funds to support work or to, to do things in ways that are not in course with Scripture, because I cannot possibly say that I'm putting money into the collection plate, and it's going to support things that I think are unscriptural, and try to claim that I'm not involved in that. You see, that's not individual practice, that's congregation. I just can't be involved in that. I'd have to separate fellowship then. Because I can't be involved in something that I'm not convinced is right. See, that's congregational activity. So this is dealing with individual practices in Romans chapter 14. I'm not saying that there's never a case in which Romans 14 applies to congregational activity, and we might use some of the principles there. I'm just pointing out that when you look specifically at Romans 14, what it's talking about, it's talking about individual practices. It's not talking about congregational activity in which we're all together performing the activity of the congregation. Thirdly, one brother has conviction, the other has doubt. Brethren, this is a very important point. I believe that this is the most common mistake that is made about Romans 14 today. I have made the mistake in the past, and I continually hear this mistake made today. And that is that we'll say that Romans 14 demonstrates that one person is absolutely convicted that something is lawful, but another person is absolutely convicted that it's unlawful. In fact, in his book, Who is My Brother, Epligard Smith wrote, you can be sure that those who conscientiously refused to eat meat believed that those who did eat meat were doing so in violation of God's law. To them, eating meat was not a matter of scruples, but sin. That is precisely why it was a matter of conscience. Now, I have said that sort of thing before, and I hear that said all the time. But is that true? Is that really what Romans 14 says? Does Romans 14 tell us about a person who is absolutely convinced that eating meats is unlawful and another person who is absolutely convinced that it's lawful? And Paul says, you guys don't worry about that. Notice how it begins. Now, except the one who is weak in faith. Now, that's not weak in the faith. That's weak in faith. He's dealing with their faith about whether or not it's right to do something. And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, except the one who is convicted and strong in faith, but opposite to you. It says, except the one who is weak in faith. His faith about something is not strong. You see that? So we've got a weak brother and we've got a strong brother. The strong brother in this text realizes he's allowed to eat meats. The weak brother doesn't have that strong of a faith. He has a weak faith. How does verse 23 define that? He doubts. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Do you see what's happening there? 
We don't have one person who is convicted utterly. It is wrong to eat meat. And when you do so, you're violating God's law and you're going to go to hell. While another brother says, oh, no, I'm absolutely convicted it's all right. We have one who is strong in the faith that it's all right and one who is weak in faith about whether or not it's right. We have one who is convicted that it's okay and one who doubts whether or not it is lawful. I recognize verse 14. Verse 14, it says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. The word translated there has the idea of makes a judgment or reckons or considers in his mind that something is unclean. But why does he think that? Why does he consider that? Because he's not been convinced that it's lawful. And so he doubts and thinks it could be unclean. See, with that in mind, when you take a look at Romans 14 and verse 5, where it says one person regards one day above another and another regards every day alike, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Is Paul saying that one person over here is utterly convinced in his own mind that they've got to keep the day? And the other person is utterly convinced in their mind that they can't keep the day? This person says, if I keep the day, it's a sin, and you're sinning by keeping the day. This person says, I've got to keep the day, and I'm sinning if I don't keep it. Paul's saying, look, y'all just be convinced in your own minds and don't worry about that one. Is that what he's saying? The reality is, we look in Romans chapter 14, we don't even know which of those two brothers is the stronger or the weaker brother. He never says. We don't know what anyone thought was a sin there. If they thought it was a sin to keep a day or a sin not to keep it, we just don't know because he didn't explain that because that wasn't the issue. The issue was, one person thought something was lawful, convinced of another person doubted. Un convinced. Let me share with you an illustration. And by the way, this, brethren, is why we can't make a universal brotherhood-wide list for issues that enter into Romans 14. Because when you consider the fact that we're all at different levels of growth and faith and conviction on numerous issues, I'm going to see something as a Romans 14 issue that you might not. For instance... I'll share this with you. I don't share it with many people. Marita knows. But I'll just be honest with you. Especially considering what we learned from the Sermon on the Mount, I am not 100% convinced that it's okay for me as a Christian to go over to Iraq and shoot down my enemies that I have been commanded to love. I'm just not convinced of that. But I'll also be honest with you that I am not 100% convinced that it's wrong because I see enough in Scripture that leads me to believe that, that, that God may allow that. And so, you know what? I have never once said anything to my brother Brad who just got back to Iraq. In fact, I'm proud that he's willing to do what he, what he believes in and stand up for that. But I couldn't do it because I have doubts. But I think Romans 14, Romans 14 teaches me who am I to use my doubts to judge everyone else in their practice. I can only do what I am absolutely convinced is right. And since I'm not convinced that's right, I'm, you're not going to see me enlisting in the army. It's just not going to happen. But I'm not going to judge others who decide that that's okay. You see, that's a matter of doubt. You, on the other hand, might be absolutely and utterly convinced that people who kill in war are sinning and they're going to go to hell. I'm going to tell you what, war can't be a Romans 14 issue for you. If you believe people are sinning and going to hell for doing that, we've got plenty of passages in Scripture that tell us what we're supposed to do when we believe people are sinning and losing their souls. Matthew chapter 18 says that we're supposed to go to them 
in private, and if they won't listen, take two or three, and then bring it before the church if they still won't listen. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says that we who are spiritual are supposed to restore such a one that we see caught in a trespass. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14 says that we're supposed to sever fellowship with those who do not obey the instruction that we find in Scripture. And brethren, if I become absolutely convinced that the Scripture says that we can't do that and people are doing it, we've got to sever, I have to sever fellowship on that. That's just what the Scripture says. There are too many passages that tell us what we're supposed to do when we believe someone is sinning and losing their souls to think that Romans 14 says, but there are some sins that we just sweep under the rug. There's just too many passages that teach us about that. But in those areas where we have doubts, we're not to use our doubts to judge others. We're talking about one brother has conviction. The other has doubt. It's prompted by inward reasoning and not God's law. You take a look at what's happening here in Romans chapter 14. This whole issue about eating meats, what was that prompted by? Was it prompted by the New Testament, by what was being revealed by the apostles and prophets as we talked about this morning? Of course not. Because when we take a look at what's revealed, they specifically state it's all right. What was it prompted by? It was prompted by inward reasoning. We don't know in Romans 14 why the weak brother would not eat his meat, why he doubted. Perhaps it was that he was a Jew that had come out of that Judaism and, and there were certain meats that he said, look, it was an absolute sin for me to eat that meat under the old law. I don't see how you can say that it's okay for me to do it now. I just can't, I just can't come clear in my conscience saying that's okay. But on the other hand, it might have been a pagan who was used to walking down to the marketplace and buying these meats that he knew had been offered to idols, and he just eat them. And in fact, in his mind, he was, he was serving the idol by eating that. And he just says, you know, I don't know which of these meats have been offered to idols. I, I might be worshiping an idol here, not even realize. I can't eat meats. I can't see my way clear in my conscience. I think it's okay. And he might even say, you know what, if you were a real Christian, you'd make this rule too. See how he might just easily do that? I don't know why. But I know this it was prompted by inward reasoning. It wasn't prompted by what the New Testament was, being, was saying as it was being developed. It was by inward reasoning. Let me give you an illustration of that today. How many of you were brought up that it's absolutely wrong to wear jeans to the assembly? Okay? Absolutely and utterly wrong. We're supposed to be honoring God. We're supposed to be worshiping God. And it is wrong to come in in jeans because that's dishonoring God. You wouldn't wear that if you were walking in to see the president. I remember I was taught you wouldn't wear that to go to a wedding. And I used to make that argument. I moved to Texas and I saw people wearing jeans at church. I said, you wouldn't wear that to a wedding. And then I went to a wedding. I said, well, you wouldn't wear that to a funeral. Then I went to a funeral. I'm convinced some of them would do it if they were meeting the president. Now, I was taught that we're supposed to honor God, and brethren, I believe that. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17 says, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We're supposed to honor God. But the moment I start making rules about how you dress and say that this rule of dress means you're honoring God or the way you're dressed means you're not honoring God, where did that come from? What verse did that come from? You find me the verse that says wearing jeans means you're dishonoring somebody. There's only one passage that I know of in the New Testament that deals with dress and worship. And that's James chapter 2. 
James chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. And it says, If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Wow. If I start telling people that because they're not dressed finely, they're not allowed to be here. James said, I've become a judge with an evil motive. But I've got to tell you, if I were to wear jeans, I would think I wasn't honoring God. And so, even though intellectually, I know there's not a bit of problem in the world with it, there's not, apart from really extenuating circumstances, I mean, I may not always wear a suit, but but it's going to be really extenuating circumstances that you're going to see me at one of our assemblies and even one of our classes here as we meet as a congregation wearing jeans. Well, as I understand intellectually, but I'm not going to judge anybody else on that. I shouldn't. Romans 14 teaches. I don't even judge my wife when she lets my son wear jeans. Because I recognize that's, that's just not a law of God. That's my own thing. So you're not going to see me doing it. But you see, that's from inward reasoning. Not from the law of God. You see, the reality is, if I am absolutely convinced that the law of God teaches something and you're violating it, I, have, I mean, the Bible says, I've got to restore you. I've got to go to you and talk to you about your sin. I don't just get to Romans 14 and under the rug. Both practices in question are lawful. Both practices in question are lawful. You take a look at Romans chapter 14. It says in verse 6, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. The reality is, Paul could not say that if he eats, he does it for the Lord if it was unlawful to eat it. He couldn't say that if they didn't keep the day, they were doing it for the Lord if it was unlawful not to keep the day. You see, both practices in question were lawful. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 8 demonstrates a similar principle. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 8, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. You see, either practice is lawful. This point is very similar to what we said up above about conviction and doubt. And really, I highlight this point merely to demonstrate to you that with our differences in growth and maturity, our ideas of what's going to fit in Romans 14 are going to be different at times. Because you see, if I am absolutely, utterly convinced that what you and I differ on, that what you're doing is unlawful and condemning you to hell, I can't put it in Romans 14. Now, if I doubt, if, it's, if, if I doubt, if I'm not sure, and so I'm just not convinced that I can do it, I, then I can see that. And we go back to our, own, our war question. You see, I doubt about that. You might be convinced that it's lawful. Somebody else might be convinced that it's unlawful. For me, I see that as a Romans 14 issue. For the person who's utterly convinced it's unlawful and people who do it are going to hell, they can't be in fellowship with that. They can't see that as a Romans 14 issue. And I could put it on my list. I could say, here are the 25 things that fit into Romans 14 and put the war question there. And that person who's absolutely utterly convinced that folks go to hell for doing that, they couldn't see that as a Romans 14 issue. And I could say it all day long, but that wouldn't change it for their mind because they're convinced the Word says it's wrong. You see, we're going to see different things there. But we've got to make our decisions based on what we believe 
the Bible teaches. Somebody says, but what if I'm wrong? The mere fact that you ask that question might demonstrate that you're not convicted, but doubt. And that's going to put you back up here. See, I'll tell you what. I realize intellectually the possibility that I might be wrong, that baptism is essential for salvation. But I don't ever ask myself, what if I'm wrong about that? Maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't tell people they're going to be lost if they don't get baptized. Because I'm utterly 100% convinced the Bible teaches they are. And I can't possibly imagine anything you'd say that would change my mind on that. But see, on the war question, I have doubts. But someone still says, but wait a minute. You know, the reality is, I might be 100% convinced and just be wrong. Aren't there times when I, I just need to realize that because I could be wrong, I shouldn't do anything about this. I shouldn't make a fellowship decision here. You know, let's think about it. On the war question again, we'll use that. I doubt you might be convinced it's okay. They might be convinced that it's unlawful. We can't all three be right. Now, rest assured that God knows which one of us is right. And all three of us have to make fellowship decisions based on what we believe the Bible teaches. Here's the thing that you need to understand. It is just as much a fellowship decision to extend and maintain fellowship as it is to withhold and sever fellowship. You see, we have convinced our minds that, well, if, if I don't make a decision here... Well, no, 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 you're making a decision. No matter what you do, you're making a decision. You may not be deciding to sever fellowship, you're deciding to extend fellowship. And it could be just as wrong to maintain and extend fellowship as it is to sever it. So you see, the reality is, no matter what choice we make, we're making a choice and it might be wrong. If I continue to study and determine that I was wrong before, that means I'll change my fellowship decisions. It may mean that I have to sever fellowship with folks that I have maintained it with. It may mean that I have to re-extend fellowship to folks I have severed it with and I have to apologize to them. But brethren, I have to make my fellowship decisions based on what I believe the Bible says. And so does the congregation. And I want you to think about it this way. Which of these two scenarios would you prefer? Would you prefer to stand before God having made an incorrect fellowship decision, being able to say to Him, Father... Based upon this passage and this passage and this passage, I thought that this is, and this is why I made the decision. And I'm sorry I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? Or would you rather stand before God and say, well, you know, Lord, all those brethren down there, they just thought that that was just kind of a Romans 14 issue and it just didn't matter, so I didn't think about it. Oh, we just kind of all agreed, Lord, that that issue didn't matter. And so I didn't worry about that one. See, brethren, here's the thing that I want us to understand. We are not allowed to make fellowship decisions based on what we brethren just kind of decide, just about commonly say, well, that one doesn't matter. We have to make fellowship decisions based on what we believe the Scripture teaches. And here's the other thing. Nobody else can make those decisions for me. I have to make my decisions in fellowship. And nobody else can make those decisions for our congregation. We have to make those decisions based on what we believe the Bible teaches. One more. There must be a safe path on which none violate their conscience. If we can't come up with a safe path where everybody can say my conscience is not violated, then we can't be in fellowship with one another. In Romans 14, the safe path regarding the meats was that the brother just wouldn't eat the meats, at least especially not in the presence of the one who had the weak faith. They were able to come up with a, weak, uh, with a safe path whereby the conscience wasn't violated. 
And on any of these issues, if we can come up with a safe path whereby nobody's conscience is violated, there's no need to separate. But there are some issues that you just can't find that safe path. For instance, I, I believe that this principle is one of the reasons why, we, why really nobody can fit most issues regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage into Romans 14. See, I believe that the same law of marriage applies to everybody whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Therefore, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, based on Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6, where, it's, where, where, God said, where Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. If a person divorces, they have sinned and violated God's law unless they put their spouse away for sexual immorality. And further, I believe based on Matthew chapter 19, 9, whether or not they're a Christian or are not a Christian, if they marry someone else after that unlawful divorce, that based on that verse, they are now committing adultery. And if they become a Christian, they are still committing adultery. But you see, there are some people that believe, and I think they're wrong, but they believe that there's a different law of marriage for those who are not Christians than for those who are Christians. And so in their mind, when you actually become a Christian, it essentially nullifies those other marriages, and the only lawful marriage is the one you're in now that you become a Christian. I think they're wrong. But that's what they believe. Now, think about this scenario. What safe path can I walk on with them? You know, maybe for some time we find out that we disagree on that, and it's just a, it's a matter of discussion and study, and, and we're studying it, and we maintain fellowship, but then somebody moves into the congregation, or, or somebody in the congregation decides to get a divorce, or, or somebody becomes a Christian who is divorced. Now, what are we going to do? You see, I believe that somebody who is divorced and remarried unlawfully becomes a Christian. The only thing they can do is they've got to get out of that marriage, or they're committing adultery. I believe they'll lose their soul. I'm 100% convinced of that. I don't have any doubt about that. I believe that they have to sever that marriage because they're committing adultery. This other fellow believes that's the only lawful marriage they've actually had. He thinks that they have to stay in that marriage. Now, what, what safe path can we walk on there? To him, I'm saying you need to end the lawful marriage. To me, he's saying they need to continue an unlawful one. Brother, that's going to be a point at which we're just going to have to sever our fellowship. We, we won't be able to walk together at that point because there is no safe path that we can walk on there. Now, because we've separated, that doesn't mean we quit studying with each other. That doesn't mean that we quit admonishing one another. You remember 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 15, Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. But we were, I would not be able to be in congregational fellowship with him. I just can't see that as a Romans 14 issue because there's no safe path. There's no, well... You know, I won't get divorced for your conscience sake because then for the other guys, or, you know, to me, well, that's violating my conscience then. You see the point there? So here's we look at Romans 14. Difference in practice, not merely belief. Individual practice, not congregational. One brother has conviction, the other has doubt. Prompted by inward reasoning, not God's law. Practices in question are all lawful. And there's a safe path on which none can violate their conscience. I think these are the things Romans 14 is talking about. Now, that's not to say that there's not other issues of fellowship that we have to ask. That's not to say there aren't other passages that, that deal with things. And that's not to say that Romans 14 won't provide some principles for other issues. Because when you look at Romans 14, that's what's going on in Romans 14. And when we make our decisions about fellowship on Romans 14, this is what we need to consider. Having said all that, I realize that when we've gotten done, I haven't really made your decision-making process any easier. I know what we'd really like is to have incontrovertible proof that here are the 15 issues that are Romans 14 and we don't have to worry about those anymore. But I can't do that. 
I hope I've demonstrated to you that we just can't make up one of those lists because it's going to be different for each of us based on where we are and what we believe the Bible teaches based on our growth process and our maturity. But I'll tell you what, if there's one thing that you get from this lesson, it's this. You have to make your own fellowship decisions. I can't make them for you. The elders can't make you for them. Colleges can't make them for you. And papers can't make them for you. Nobody out there gets to set up the list. You have to look at the Scripture and make your decisions. As a congregation, we have to make our fellowship decisions. Nobody else gets to make those for us. The elders of the congregation down the road don't get to make those decisions for us. The colleges don't get to make those decisions for us. The brotherhood papers don't get to make those decisions for us. Whatever the brotherhood generally kind of thinks doesn't matter. They don't get to make that decision for us. We have to make that decision, and we have to make it based on what we believe the Bible teaches. If we believe people are sinning, we can't allow them just to stay in that sin. If we have doubts, we can't use our doubts to judge people. That's not to say we won't talk with them about it, but we can't use our doubts to make lines of judgment and condemnation. Now, before we leave this, I do want to call your attention to one very important part, and that's verse 15. If because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Sometimes I fear we miss the real reason Romans 14 was written. Romans 14 was written that we might better understand how to walk according to love with our brethren. After all, 1 Timothy 1.5 points out that the, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You see, Romans 14 was not written so that we might delineate all the issues over which we have to divide. Romans 14 was not written so that we might know all the issues about which we must maintain fellowship. Romans 14 was not written so that I might know all the liberties that I have to refrain from. Romans 14 was written so that I might learn how to walk according to love with you and so that you might learn how to walk according to love with me. And whatever decisions we make based on Romans 14, whether we have to decide that because we believe somebody is living in impenitent sin that we have to sever fellowship, or whether we decide that because it's a matter of opinion or judgment or doubt or, or that we're weak in faith or they're weak in faith that we're going to continue to maintain fellowship, or whether we decide that I'm going to refrain from this certain liberty in order to protect your conscience, whatever choice I make, I have to do it walking according to love. Not in order to put you in your place. Not in order to present myself as some type of spiritual mega-Christian. But because I want to walk according to love and help as many people as possible go to heaven. That's what Romans 14 is about. So remember whatever decisions you make regarding your conscience and fellowship. But that is the ultimate principle of this chapter. 